Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Herod Wants to Kill You. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 21, 2016, the second Sunday in Lent. With the Iowa caucus last Monday and the New Hampshire primary this Tuesday, America's presidential election has begun in full force. Nine months from now, we'll have a new president. Watching the Iowa returns on CNN last week filled me with deep discouragement, partly because they epitomized our culture of total noise, but mainly because of the vulgarity of our civic discourse. And oddly enough, I was also agitated by three political scriptures from the lectionary this week that put our presidential election into a new light. The primaries made me think of the poem called Politics by the Nobel laureate and Irish Senator William Butler Yeats. The poem was written in 1938 one year before he died, and on the eve of World War II. The poem contrasts the personal and the political. He writes, How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about. And there's a politician that has both read and thought. And maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. Yeats introduces his poem with a quotation from the novelist Thomas Mann, which says, In our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in political terms. In other words, there's no meaning outside of politics. The person who disengages from politics, who is apolitical, risks being disparaged as irrelevant or unpatriotic. Surely their life lacks meaning. But that's just what three of the readings this week do. They remind us that however important politics and presidents are, believers see a bigger picture. They form an alternate community. In Luke's Gospel, the Pharisees warn Jesus, You better get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Three years ago, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem premiered the first-ever exhibition of Herod the Great, including 250 artifacts from his tomb. Herod was an ambitious builder, and a few recent biographies have tried to redeem his reputation. But most historians remember him as a paranoid and ruthless madman. Herod executed one of his ten wives, two of his sons, and numerous detractors. In the Gospels, when Herod heard rumors about the birth of a rival king, he tried to murder the Magi, 
he ordered the infanticide in Bethlehem, and he beheaded John the Baptist on a dinner party dare. And so, a simple but important point. There was a deep antagonism between Jesus and the political powers of his day. And thus, the sharp response by Jesus, Go tell that fox, I will do what I do. Jesus threatened the political powers, not because he sought to control what they controlled, but because he undercut the pretensions and claims to supremacy. This becomes even more obvious if we fast forward to the end of Lent and the arrest of Jesus. Today we hear this as a religious story, but in its own day it was explicitly political. In Luke 23, Jesus was dragged before Pontius Pilate for three reasons, all of which were political. Luke writes, We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate met the angry mob outside the praetorium, then grilled Jesus alone back inside, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I am a king. Pilate then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate Jesus with purple robes and a crown of thorns befitting a man whom he had miscalculated was a political poser. Hail, O King of the Jews. Back outside, the mob hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate thus found himself caught between angering the mob and betraying his emperor. And so he caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. And with that response, we have an ancient version of Thomas Mann's observation that there is no meaning outside the political status quo. In the epistle this week, Paul says that he gave us a pattern and an example to follow. Namely, that our citizenship is in heaven. Once again, today we hear this as a religious phrase, but in Paul's day, it was overtly political. The language sounds pious in the worst sense of the word, that believers are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. But for Paul, the implications were more political than spiritual. In his commentary on Acts, The Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan observed that pagans accused the earliest believers of sedition because of the overt political implications of this confession of a kingdom of God and a citizenship in heaven. By confessing Jesus as Lord, they rejected Caesar as king. Loyalty to Christ the King was absolute and unconditional. 
whereas fidelity to the Roman state was relative and conditional. Finally, there's Abraham. Genesis 15 describes how his descendants would live for 400 years in Egypt as strangers in a country not their own. This language of resident aliens was echoed by New Testament writers to describe believers. If Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world, then his followers were aliens and strangers in the world. Ephesians 2.9, Hebrews 11.13, 1 Peter 2.11. The political theorist Michael Walzer of Princeton makes a simple observation in his book, In God's Shadow, Politics in the Hebrew Bible. He argues that while the Hebrew Bible contains a lot about politics, it isn't really interested in politics. Rather, it presents us with a radical anti-politics. Since God is sovereign, Caesar is secondary. The prophets, for example, are poets of social justice and the most important form of public speech in Israel. But they're not political activists with any program. With their emphasis on divine intention as opposed to human wisdom, the prophets exemplify the Hebrews' Bible radical denial of the doctrine of self-help. The prophets, says Walzer, disdain politics. In contrast to Greek philosophers, the biblical writers never attach great value to politics as a way of life. Says Walzer, politics is simply not recognized by the biblical writers as a centrally important or humanly fulfilling activity. In place of a radically relativized politics, says Walzer, the Hebrew Bible commends an ethic or a way of life. Micah 6, 8 comes to mind. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Speak out for those who have no voice. Protect the weak. Feed the poor. Free the slaves. Welcome the alien. The sovereign God calls each one of us to a larger community that's characterized by what Walter calls fellow feeling. And so we trust ourselves to God alone and are responsible for each other. Gary Wills uses the identical language in his own book, What Jesus Meant. He writes, the program of Jesus's reign can be seen as a systematic anti-politics. There's no such thing as a Christian politics, he says, and efforts by Democrats, Republicans, or any other party to co-opt Jesus for their cause distort the gospel. The Jesus of the Gospels, says Wills, proposes no political program, but instead something far more strenuous, something scary, dark, demanding. No state or political party can indulge in the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands when he calls us to lovingly serve the least and the lost. 
But self-sacrificing love for my neighbor is precisely the message of the Lenten season. For books this week, I review a memoir by Caitlin Doughty. The title, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and Other Lessons from the Crematory. New York, Norton, 2014, 254 pages. Every year, about 2.5 million people in the United States die. But for the most part, we work hard to deny and sanitize death and avoid thinking about it in meaningful ways. Unlike a hundred years ago when people died at home and families dealt with death up close and personal, today we deal in superstitions and misconceptions. Indeed, the word burial comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for conceal. Caitlin Doughty's memoir aims to look mortality straight in the eye, based upon her years working as a mortician. Doughty does not spare us the dirty details of the funeral industry or the harsh realities of cremation. Two hours at 1,500 degrees turns a human body into about five pounds of ash and bone. In her view, she writes, death should be known, known as a difficult mental, physical, and emotional process, respected and feared for what it is. We can do this by deconstructing the funeral industry and by developing what she calls rituals of true significance, rituals involving the body, the family, emotions, Rituals that couldn't be replaced with purchasing power. There are, for example, witness cremations and green burials that forego not only embalming, but even cremation. Thus, Dottie would disrupt our polite complacency about a taboo topic. She writes, When you know that death is coming for you, the thought inspires you to be ambitious, to apologize to old enemies, call your grandparents, work less, travel more, learn Russian, take up knitting, fall in love. Which is to say, we can live a better life if we think more wisely about death. For two other books on this subject reviewed at Journey with Jesus, see my review of the Iraqi novelist Sinan Antun in his book The Corpse Washer and Andrew Meredith, The Removers. Once again, a memoir by Caitlin Doughty, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. For movies this week, I review a title called The Revenant. This period piece by the Mexican director, producer, and writer Alejandro Gonzalez Inurritu led all movies with 12 Oscar nominations in 2016. It also won Golden Globes for Best Picture, 
Best Actor, and Best Director. Leonardo DiCaprio stars as a 19th century fur trapper named Hugh Glass. After his company of mountain men is attacked by Indians who don't like the fact that their lands and livelihoods have been stolen, they start a trek back to their home fort. But Glass gets separated from them, then, in a shocking scene, mauled by a grizzly bear. His sidekicks murder his son and leave him for dead. But in this saga of survival and revenge, Glass isn't finished. For such is the definition of the French word revenant, literally coming back, as in a person who returns, especially after they were thought to be dead. The technical complexities of shooting this film were amazing. In the remote Canadian Rockies, in the dead of winter, at elevation, and at Inuritu's insistence, only in natural light, despite the short days. I ain't afraid to die, says Hugh Glass when he gets back to base camp. I already done that. Once again, from Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu, the film The Revenant. And finally, for poetry, in the second week of Lent, we continue with a series of short Lenten prayers by Thomas Hopko. Hopko is an American Eastern Orthodox theologian. His poem, Lenten Prayers, Week 2. You manifested humility, O Christ, as the way of genuine nobility, by emptying yourself and taking the form of a slave. You did not hear the self-praising prayers of the Pharisee, but you received the broken sighs of the publican, as a blameless sacrifice. Therefore, I cry out to you, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, and save me, O Savior. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 21st, the second Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.